Hello and welcome to your Over the Farm Gate podcast brought to you by Farmers Guardian. I'm your host this week, FG Deputy Editor Olivia Midgley. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite platform so you never miss an episode. This week, we bring you the next part of FG's Farming Can campaign, which showcases what UK agriculture delivers for society. And this time, it's all about economic contribution. As well as being the bedrock of rural life, British farming's contribution to the national economy topped £9.4 billion in 2020, with the agri-food sector worth £127 billion and employing about 4 million people. That's around 13% of all UK employees. Jess Fredenberg has been speaking to Anderson's economist, Graham Redman, about how farming fits into the economy nationally and how COVID and Brexit are impacting that. But first, she speaks to Paul Graves, a farmer and butcher whose family business, HV Graves, has been selling meat to the local community in Briston in North Norfolk since 1946. Jess talks to Paul about the success of one food and farming business and how that's had far reaching benefits for the local economy. Paul, can you can you just tell us a little bit first about about Graves and who you supply and where you source from? Right, we've been here 75 years. We have a small farm, um, a, a busy butchery which we do um, catering mm-hmm. to pubs, restaurants, and hotels. We do daily deliveries, and we also do uh, daily deliveries to people's houses, which has um, been very good through this. Um, difficult times yes I bet so you you sound properly busy then I mean I know obviously um you know last year we we definitely uh read stories didn't we in the press about how people were returning to their local butchers yes they are yes and is that something that you think has stuck because obviously we're we're kind of 18 months on aren't we from the beginning of the pandemic have you have you seen customers continue to come in more yeah, than they have come in very good and you know to support us we, we help them in the bad times so they're returning that now and that's um been very good that's really nice to hear and have you had um a lot of new customers and have they stuck as well yes they have yeah yeah they have that's brilliant that's really really good news um so do you i mean do you think I guess, you know, a local butcher, they've always been part of the local economy, haven't they? Yeah. Um, but what what would you say, you know, do you think it's really made people think more about about that and about their connection to, to They local? like to know where it comes from, and that's not travelled food miles. We have all our own beef. We buy lamb from a farmer in the village, and we buy pork from the neighbouring farmer's around local villages so everything we get we try and get as local as we possibly can so that contributed you know to the economy for the local people i was going to say it sounds because your 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 customers are um quite varied aren't they i mean i yeah. i know yeah. um like you said you've got the butcher's shop and um i mean i know butchers, bakers and grocery yeah and, and i've i've myself been to events locally where graves uh graves have got like a hog roast going or something and yeah i know you like you said you supply um you know more catering as well so it's a yeah. really large spectrum so you know when a, when a butchery does well like this when it's like a local butchery um and it's linked to you know local farms what is the impact on the local economy would you say like how far reaching is it well i think that's very good because we 
um, we employ nearly 50 staff. We don't, they don't want to go home and do less hours. Sometimes we give more hours than they perhaps want to do, but that all works pretty well. And the money go back into the economy. If they're earning it, they're spending it. Yeah, absolutely. And so in your supply chain then, I guess like who have you got involved when you think of from farm right through to your customers? The people well, we, we, we have our own um, small herd of um, cows, yeah. um, suckler herd, but we don't have enough cows to supply our own um, usage. So we buy them, store cattle in from neighbouring farms. Occasionally we buy out of the markets, but the majority we have our small customers we go around and we keep a good um, relationship with them which we've had for years mm-hmm. and um, all gone we do all around mostly all around haulage so and we take them to the abattoir and we're there early in the mornings um, so there's less stress on the animals and we think that you know reflect on the customers what they're eating at the end of the day yeah yeah so really big like you say big impact there isn't there there's on farm there's there's the abattoirs there's um there's the customers the catering and like you say you're employing 50 or so people so yeah it sounds like really important oh well glad glad to hear that it's all going well yeah and, very good um thanks thanks for coming on the the farmer's guardian podcast then paul lovely and thank you thanks to paul graves there now jez looks at the wider economic benefits of food and farming Hello everyone, today we're talking about how farming can deliver for the economy. So I'm very pleased to be joined by Graham Redman, an economist and partner at the Anderson Centre, which provides research and advice to agri-food businesses. Graham, I just wanted to start with the, the basics really. I mean, when, when you think of the supply chains that we're talking about, um, starting with the farm, you know, how many people does the food and farming sector employ? And and how, and how much does the food and farming sector actually contribute to the economy? Okay, um, well, that's a, a good place to start because employment is obviously one of the sort of key things. If you think about the entire food chain, it's somewhere approaching 10% of the, the workforce. But agriculture itself is relatively small. So it's less than 1% is a contribution towards the economy uh, and approaching 2% is the percentage of the workforce that's in agriculture, relatively small. Um, but uh, of course, as you get into the countryside, it becomes proportionately higher. And I guess if it starts in farming, doesn't it? That's where the, if we're talking about the whole agri-food sector, it's obviously, although it's contributing that specifically, it's then contributing much more, isn't it? If a lot of that starts on farm. Um, yes, I mean, you could start further along the um, supply chain, couldn't you, with this of the um, companies that supply agriculture um, yeah. and in agriculture, which produces the, um, the goods for the uh, food supply chain and then the processing and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's, it's a, a network of different companies that do different things and organisations rather than just a single straight line, of course. Yes. No, and do you think there are any... Um, you know, is, is there, are there are there any ways that farming contributes to the economy that you think are maybe overlooked or many people don't think about much? Because as you've just said, it's a very complex network, isn't it? The, uh, the one thing about sort of agriculture is it has uh, a quite a high level of, should we refer to it as social capital? So the connections 
um, the knowledge of the, um, the, the social interactions and so on. Um, you know, agriculture, farms, they've been there for a long time. They know the people around them. They can sort of draw in sort of various people to work with them, uh, either on a paid basis or, you know, they've, you know they, they know a lot of people around them. So there, there is sort of a, a certain amount of sort of that capital, which is sometimes difficult to quantify. And certainly, I, I guess, in terms of making policy, you, you can't simply put numbers on it. Um, so, yeah, there, there are things which farmers do which won't appear on the, sort of the national economic accounts. Um, of course, there are. I think that's a really good point, isn't it? The, the things that are not just hard numbers um, are mm. still, still valuable, obviously. Um, what about diversification businesses? What do we know about, about them and their contribution? The diversification in agriculture is gradually rising. Um, it's been going up uh, over a, a large number of years. All sorts of different ideas people are getting involved with, but essentially uh, farmers are increasingly looking around their farm businesses and seeing all the resources with which they could use to earn money rather than simply, I have to farm, I have to make food goods with these resources. So, you know, redundant farm businesses, oh, I beg your pardon, farm buildings, those that are too small for modern day machinery and so on and so forth is the obvious place to start. And that's where sort of most diversification historically has come from. Um, most um, uh, renewables enterprises simply need space. Um, so agriculture has that. So, you know, of course, uh, there's quite a lot of wind turbines, solar panels, those kind of things, but all sorts of other sort of clever, innovative ideas uh, are starting to pop out of the woodwork or increasingly appearing. Uh, and I guess in the years going forward, we'll see more of that um, as agriculture is changing the the purpose of agriculture, if you like, is becoming more than just simply food production. And um, so we're going to see an acceleration, I'm sure, of diversification ideas into uh, the future. Are you referring more to the use of, I guess, natural capital? Well, I mean, we could think about the natural capital in terms of how government is going to compensate farmers in the future instead of uh, receiving a sort of a, a payment for occupying land, there'll be a payment for doing something, like the public money for public goods concept that we've all heard about. Um, and building up natural capital is one way that government is looking to pay farmers, but also simply in terms of, you know, different things that you know, consumers are looking to spend their money uh, farmers have resources which you know could attract some of that. So you know, whether that's um, uh, leisure activities, out and about things, or farm stores, all sorts of different ideas um, that um, you know farmers might start increasingly looking into. Mm, yes. Okay. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about how the sector has been coping with some very big changes and big big stresses over the last couple of years i'm thinking covid and brexit of course right um starting with covid uh obviously certainly early on in the pandemic food became like a really big focus didn't it and yes, uh, you know, right. yeah as supply chains readjusted and 
and people start to look at look at their their local supply chains a little bit more as well. Um, I mean, now we're we're obviously sort of a year to eighteen months on from that. You know, what would you say? What do you think we've we've learned about the food and farming sector in the UK and and how resilient or or not it is? Well, it's. I mean, I think as, as much as anything else, that the whole COVID uh, crisis uh, reminded me and a lot of people. Um, how secure an industry, agriculture and food supply is to be in when the unexpected occurs. Because, of course, we all need to eat, whether we are working, whether we're furloughed, whether we're, you know, whether we've got lots of money or none at all, we still need to eat. So under every condition, if we're going to live, we need food, which means farming simply has to carry on. And it certainly did in a very resilient manner. There were some occasions where sort of parts of the food supply chain had to make very, very quick changes, switching from food service into retail and so on. But nobody went hungry as a result of uh, failures in the food supply chain when COVID started. Um, probably the biggest impact to agriculture overall, yes, everyone or lots of people had to make certain changes to the way in which they did things. But the biggest overall impact when COVID first struck was the fact that as consumers, we all felt vulnerable. And when you were feeling vulnerable, you became very protective of your key resources. And the main one at the time, of course, was food. And food waste fell in the house by 25%. Food waste in the hotel. Uh, and the restaurant clearly fell to zero because there was no food being served in the food service sector. And so the demand for food fell substantially. And so the demand on agriculture fell as well. So that was the biggest thing that suddenly there was this change because people were using up the scraps that were in their fridges. And then gradually over the course of the year, we became a little bit more comfortable. We knew that the food was going to be coming along. Um, and the sort of the whole supply chain had worked. Um, yes, lessons had been learnt, but um, you know there were no out and out failures. And um, so now we're pretty much back to the situation where we were before uh, the whole crisis began. But it's particularly interesting, I think, if you now look at, for example, where our red meat is coming from, because it does look as if more is being sourced from the UK, i.e. a shorter food supply chain, maybe from places we know where it's being um, produced and certainly uh, you know, more demand from the small um, boutique corner shop, butcher shops and so on, uh, which often source more from you know, local farms as well. So I think and we have seen a change there as well. That's very interesting, actually, both both those points you make and just shows mm -hmm. what actually can be done in terms of cutting food waste if we really want to. And the, the, all the all the resources and emissions and everything that go with it that can be cut. Um, and of course, the, the going back to, to local supply chains. Um, obviously, we we I think we've heard quite a bit, haven't we, the last year, like you mentioned there about um, sourcing meat in particular locally. Do, do we know whether people are still sticking to um, sourcing other food more locally because it's obviously something that a lot of people did right at the beginning of the pandemic and 
I mean, I've seen, as I'm sure you have, all sorts of surveys saying, you know, with people saying, oh, yes, I've gone back to buying local and I want to continue buying local. But do we know if that's happened yet? I think it's too early to tell, to mm. be honest, um, whether it was a lockdown thing or whether it's uh, created a, a changing trend, which we're going to see for some years. So maybe this time next year, we should be able to answer that question. Do you think they're looking at... Um, at supply chains and the resilience of those do you think in in general like has covid has covid sort of suggested that shorter supply chains are safer um i think that is a little bit simplistic mm. to say we need to have short supply chains because of course if a short supply chain fails then we're completely scuppered mm -hmm. benefit of a longer supply chain is there's lots more links so if one of those links fails, then you can go off in a different direction and source whatever. Um, we need to be careful about saying that self-sufficiency is uh, our route to food security, because if we just sourced all our food from the UK and then the UK had a, a, a very bad drought or a very bad flood, um, or for whatever reason we couldn't produce the food we needed, then that's very food insecure, isn't it? So it's all about getting the balance right um you know how much do we need to produce ourselves and how much do we need to import and it's also about efficiency i mean if you take an extreme uh we're not very good in this country at producing shall we say oranges or bananas of course we're not so yes we're going to import those but there are other goods which we can produce other countries can produce them pretty well too so simply saying because we can produce them we should feed ourselves is sometimes maybe a bit short-sighted Okay, no, it's a very interesting point. And I guess when you're talking about balance, I would bring into the mix at the moment, the whole issue with um, a lack of lorry drivers and the, the problems that that's, that is causing getting yes. food across from the continent. So yes. like, like you say, it's a, it's a whole mix, isn't it, of things. Um, let, let's move on to, to Brexit, shall we? Um, because I feel like obviously Brexit really happened just as as COVID was taking off. Um, so I think the, the, the sort of um, scrutiny and headlines, shall we say, about Brexit has been far less than what it would have been if COVID hadn't have happened. Um, that's, that's my personal view. Um, what, I mean, there's obviously been, there has been a lot going on that we have, we have known about. There's obviously the, the trade deals with Australia and New Zealand and all the, issues there with uh, with conditions around that. We know Liz Trust, the new foreign secretary, is obviously currently um, getting friendly with the US and not so friendly with France. There's still issues going on with, with Northern Ireland and trade there. Um, and we know that exports uh, have certainly been affected to the EU. So what, I mean, what's, I know there's a lot of factors going on there, but what really has been the impact of Brexit on the food and farming sector in, in sort of money terms then, Graham? Okay, well, um, as you point out, we always knew that any kind of Brexit was going to lead to, um, should we say, a bit of sand in the sort of the cogs of trade. Um, so the non-tariff measures were inevitably, inevitably going to make trading with Europe a bit more complicated. Now, the, the, or the, the trade deal that we've done with Europe uh, is quite good for agriculture uh, in that most agricultural goods are sort of tariff free, but you know, still 
we're not in a single market any longer. So as a, a, a lorry load of, um, I don't know, frozen meat or something goes from one country to another into or out of the UK, then a certain number of those lorries, the back's going to have to be opened up, they're going to have to be tested, sampled, uh, veterinary inspections, all those kind of things, uh, which not only costs money, but also more importantly, takes time. And that time is quite expensive, especially if you're waiting for a link to, you know, send those consignments on to different parts of Europe or whatnot as well. So, you know, that that is something which inevitably we're going to see um, will have had a, a, an impact on overall trade. But at the same time, we need to bear in mind that we are uh, on balance a net importer of food. And therefore, if it becomes gradually a little bit more difficult to import food to meet the UK's consumption requirements, then on balance, there will be some sectors of agriculture which will have benefited. And we're seeing you know, some, some prices in, for example, pork and poultry prices are relatively good at the moment. And that might be at least in part because of uh, some of the um, uh, issues. Um, it's not quite so smooth any longer because of these tariff measures um, just coming into place. Um, as you say, I mean, it's a really good point that the impact of Brexit has been completely hidden, if you like, because of COVID. Um, and, you know, Brexit was going to be quite visible. But then this Goliath came along, which completely smothered um, the trade negotiations, the impact of, you know, leaving Europe and uh, single market and all this kind of stuff. So, yes, it has been very much covered up. Um, by this much bigger news item um, and impact on, on food supply. But you know, that aside, it's inevitably slowing down trade a little bit. We're seeing slightly less going out of the, uh, the UK. But as a response, you know, the two, the two um, things together might just make us a little bit more uh, self-sufficient. And certainly the two together will have helped us think as consumers, a little bit more about the food we're eating, and that's got to be a good thing. Mm, interesting. No, it's very interesting points. I mean, do you do you think, Graham, um, because of like you're saying, you know, COVID has kind of smothered um, what what would have been in terms of Brexit coverage? You know, from your mm. from your perspective and the job that you do, has it has that made it more difficult to kind of know what's going on you know do you think many people in the sector um who really you know look into this is it is it quite difficult to know what's going on or do you feel like you have a good picture of it well of, of course um and and if only one variable changed at a time wouldn't that be lovely for yeah. people analyzing markets like me and so on you'd be able to tell exactly what the impact was um but of course all variables are always changing and so identifying one from another is, you know, can become a little bit complicated from time to time. So, uh, yes, I mean, that, that fact has certainly been at play this last year. Do you feel, um, I mean, what do you have a kind of feeling about how things will progress from here on regarding Brexit and, and trade? And, and I know you've, you've obviously just mentioned uh, the idea of, you know, people becoming more interested in, in sourcing UK produce food and that's becoming more self-sufficient in that way but mm. are there any other do you have any other thoughts about what might happen over the next few years? Yeah well we just need to bear in mind that the Brexit is not um, a single date it's now a process an ongoing process and you know as 
um, rules of production or, or sort of regulations in this country diverge from those in Europe, then you know there are going to be different trade arrangements and negotiations taking place as well. And of course, as agricultural policy um, changes across the UK as well, England leading the way, as you've already hinted, um, Jez, then you know that is going to cause differences in farming practices as well. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we've got. Um, I guess the uh, you know farming looking ahead and being uh, less well not less but you know being about more than more than just producing food and looking mm. at other other resources like natural capital and how they can be used. We've mm. got as you've mentioned um, the impact of Brexit and us becoming possibly more self sufficient in that sense and more I guess more of a, a UK based diet. Are there any other things that you think might happen in the future? I know you can't crystal ball gaze or anything, but you know, is, is, do you have? Is there any other, like maybe one other thing that you think we might see emerge in the next, say, the next ten years? Well, the big thing that we just need to watch out for is as policy changes, um, you know, the viability of different farming sectors and farming competences, if you like, uh, might become um, varied as well. So uh, up until now, of course, we've had a, almost as, an as of right payment. If you occupy land uh, and you meet the cross compliance regulations, then you get a payment. Whereas from now on, um, that's going to be tapering away. And in order to get uh, subsidy money, you're going to have to be doing some things which will either cost money or time to achieve so some kind of benefit to society and you'll get paid for it some people will embrace that entirely and make as much money or even more than they have been doing out of bps others less so and that might depend on their farming system it might depend on their farm layout it might depend on their own attitude towards um, public uh, money and public goods, um, the value of their current farming um, system, how intensive it is, all sorts of different things. Um, but in 10 years' time, because of that, we might see a whole range of quite different farming layouts and farming systems, um, and indeed different people farming as well. Um, that's something that's highlighted in the sort of the new edition of the John Nix pocketbook, which has just come out, which points out that some farmers, the best farmers of today are going to be still farming in 10 years time, but might be doing something completely different as well. So different farm systems, are possibly different people farming as well. Really interesting. Thank you. Um, there's, yeah, a lot, a lot of change happening then. Um, and That's uh, right. yeah, no. Thank you very much, Graham. That was some really interesting, interesting insights. Good. My pleasure, Jess. Thanks to Jez, Paul and Graham. When you hear all those figures, it really brings it home just how much the food and farming industry and associated industries deliver. And you'd soon realise if farming was taken out of that equation. Well, that's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes of Over the Farm Gate. And don't forget you can find out more about Farming Can. Just head to fginsight.com forward slash farming can. Until next week from us at FG, thank you for listening. Goodbye for now. <laughs>